Greetings to everyone and welcome to episode 4 of the Godspeak podcast. The Greek and I will once again be convening to talk about things pertaining to religion and the supernatural, so I hope you enjoy today's conversation. I'm just going to keep the introduction brief. Godspeak.com has no political, religious, or corporate affiliations and is completely managed by myself, although the possibility of offering donations is open to whomever wishes to do that on my other site, greekspeak.com. So, thank you again for tuning in, and let's get the conversation started. Hello there, Greek. How has life been uh, treating you since the last time we spoke? Oh, uh, this is the usual treatment. <laughs> That's a very open-ended answer, but no, no worries. Um, okay, so we've previously covered some bro- broader topics about the supernatural, which will allow us to talk further about things like religion or the metaphysical. And so I'd like to start with looking at the mainstream religions, Uh, because nearly all the talk about the gods in the last few thousand years has been filtered through the prism of either so-called Judaism, Christianity, Islam, or Buddhism. And so for this episode, we'll be looking at what they call Judaism to see how that developed into what it is today and how it snowballed into something quite different than where it came from. But let's start with the idea of what they call monotheism and how that acts as a backdrop for everything else. So from what I see, it wasn't until around the 1600s that terms like monotheism and polytheism were first used as we understand them today. Um, Apparently it was weaponized by academia and religious writers to sort of discriminate between societies that were quote-unquote civilized because they believed in one god and others in the third world were primitive because they acknowledged multiple gods. Can you talk about the role of academia and westernism in general in shaping the idea of monotheism? No, actually there's nothing I can good I can say about academia other than um, people aspire to it and when they do aspire to academia meaning to studying it they have to become literate so other than the drive for people to have a certain level of literacy you know communication written word and such uh, and other study forms Academia serves no purpose other than it's one of the institutions that has befallen to those that control the earth, which are malevolent forces. So that's it. That's the entire sonic right there. We're, we're done. <laughs> I'm just joking. Yeah, very funny. Uh, okay, well, there's so- several things we can backtrack on. Uh, the filter of the, the mainstream religions that you mentioned um, are all in, in object can be objectified as forms of paganism as well. So not to leave out paganism, because there there are uh, large pagan communities, and it, it's kind of hard to, to speak on that. You know, you could look up what paganism means or whatever, and you'll find that even that is adulterated. But if one were to say um, those mainstream religions you mentioned earlier are uh, steeped in pagan ritual, that would be very accurate to say that, and it would be very difficult to refute that, right? Um the second thing is regarding monotheism. Uh, it, it's a confusing term, uh, meaning uh, most people think there is only one God, and I guess the term is supposed to mean belief in one God. And most people that have multiple gods do that anyway, because each God is uh, you uh, attribute uh, have different have different attributes. 
which one would regard that God for, you see. So I think uh, what we've done here with the sonic events is um, when you ask a question or I, or we come up with a subject matter, I like to steer clear from the um, – Anyone listening to Greek speak also will know that. Steer, steer clear from the typical ideology and narratives that are out there because they're, they're confusing and they're designed to be so, and um, it's actually a form of politics. So just to – I almost want to bypass your question because uh, it, it's, it's complex. Uh, the narratives that have been put forward from those religions – uh, are complexly stupid, if I can say that, right? And uh, are designed to make the individuals insane, if you know what I mean, uh, uh, if they're examined, because they're completely um, diametric within themselves, divided, uh, opposing, contradictory completely, just like academia. So how's that for an answer? It certainly is an answer. Um, I agree with you in the sense that I don't think that there's any gain to be had to overly dissect things that are inherently distasteful. But I think that there is some measure of gain that could be had by at least looking at the history of certain things to better right. understand the present. So when you look at the history of monotheism, you do find ancient references to the idea of a supreme or preeminent deity in things like Zoroastrianism, even in the late Bronze Age with Akhenaten's reverence of the god Aten. Um, but I do believe that that kind of reverence is actually what they call henotheism, where you have one god that you place above all others as the most important. Um, but right. Eno meaning Eno meaning primary Greek, like Eno is the first number in Greek, Eno, Dio, Tria, right? Mm -hmm. Where mono means soul or one, where Eno means prime. Correct. And so this notion of only one god existing and then all, all other spirit beings being peripheral isn't really something that pops up until after 500 BC. You start to see references in Greek philosophy to things like Aristotle's prime mover. The Stoics talk about their cosmic god, and then later on certain Judean sects eventually start saying that their god is the only one. What are some of the developments that you've seen historically where things move towards this only recognizing one god as being relevant or legitimate? Okay, when any, anything is moved forward uh, in a culture... It's done by those that control the culture, and it's usually those that um, you never heard of. So I've said before, if you've ever heard of someone or seen them or their name, they're not the ones in power. They are figureheads, all of them, going back in history as far as you want to go uh, in 99% in of the time. Uh, the only time you do find uh, those that say they're in power, are in power, have some divine influence, right? And that's a whole other discussion. So in other words, um, the political science of it, right, um, when they put forward uh, monotheism, what they are telling you, if you translate that, that they are God over you. And they can enforce it. Because if you don't agree with what they say, they'll send someone over to kill you and your children and take all your stuff or wipe you out or genocide you. So that's code, basically. Uh, actually, there's even... Uh, passages in scripture where men will uh, certain men will elevate themselves to that point uh, in the end overtly but when you look at let's say in God we trust uh, on the dollar bill whenever a, a name of a God is not given uh, the people that are promoting that behind the scenes are the gods they consider themselves to be God 
whenever the information is obscured. Anyone who, in other words, a, a quote-unquote gatekeeper is in control of, uh, and after a while they, they so, so the monotheism, when you examine it very closely, the power base that promotes that culturally, academically, however, politically, they're putting themselves in that position. And they rely on an ignorant populace, and uh, the populace, of course, is very reliable. So that's, that's a very simple point, though, that aspect. Because anyone at all that has any even cursory, you know, literacy, or even is not illiterate, that asks someone else to read any primary fundamental um, document, ancient document regarding the gods, you'll see that monotheism is, is not a good point. That's very interesting. Um, also quite novel, even in the esoteric things that I've written, I've never quite seen them, you know, hint to that, because at least in the esoteric writings, they'll say, we're propping up this nonsense, and we're the ones who are the gods. But I don't, I don't think I've come mm -hmm. across that um, position. No, before. you won't, because, because it's, it's overly objectifying. A simple point is this. You go to, uh, let's say, any major religious institution. Once you get into the deeper inner bowels, you'll find that they worship Satan. And if you ask them why, they'll say because he's the ruler of the earth. Vatican, Judean, Islam, uh, Hindu, uh, all, the, all the world religions do that. When you get into the bowels of, you go know, into the Vatican, into whatever, you know, they're Satanists. And they're not, they're not uh, public about it, but they're not that private about it either. In other words, if you're uh, cleaning toilets in the Vatican, you will know that. You don't have to be a high bishop, you know, right? Just cleaning toilets or, you know, the Swiss guard there knows that. Everybody knows that. Anybody that's part of the administrative faculty. If you're there to, as a window washer, you know that. They're Satanists. They're, they're, not, they're not shy about it. But uh, it doesn't get publicly disclosed. Actually, it is disclosed. It's just not confirmed. I hate that word disclosure because disclosure just means to reveal. And, but confirmation means you get the seal of you know, approval from an authority. So, again, this can be debated on a, a juvenile level. But on a mature uh, objectifying level, yeah, the, the, all the real, all the main religion administrative bodies are Satanists, and if you add, they they won't hide it. You won't see it in you know in, in the press, and they won't say it on the pulpit. But they'll tell you, yeah, well the um, uh, the uh, Satan runs the earth. Why? So of course we worship him. He's our, he's the god of this world, which is also in scripture, by the way. The Freemasons, who are Gnostics, also worship that kind of stuff. When I say Satan. I'm saying that in a, uh, um, in a in a very general sense. They actually have very specific deities, you know, like ancient demons and things like that, is what I mean. But when I say Satanism, it's a broad brush to make people think, uh, you know, of the opposite, the adversary versus what they're told. And by the way, when you hear about Gnostics, just remind them that, you know, how the, um, the Vatican has the Jesuits and, you know, each... Uh, you know, each religious group has sort of like its own army. Well, the army of the Gnostics is the, are the Freemasons. Freemasons are Gnostics, by the way. They they do use the term, but not they don't want to be associated with it. Just like, for example, I, I don't want to be associated with Christians. I will never say I'm a Christian. But if you look at what I profess to, you know, my statement of faith, yes, of course, it lies in the uh, biblical 
Messiah, biblical Christ. Mm -hmm. Oh, so that means you're Christian. No, I'm not. You see, that's how the Freemasons do with the Gnostics. Get it. Yeah. And, and although, by the way, uh, uh, a fundamentalist meaning base, not, you know, they tell you fundamental is a bad term. Fundamental means just fundamentals, right? Like the word A is pronounced ah, the word B is pronounced be, you know, it's, it's not, you know, it's fundamentalism. Uh, a fundamentalist uh, Muslim is a Torah believer. Actually, they did teach that, uh, well, that the law is in the Torah, right? So does that make them a closet Jew? No. Does that make them Jewish? No. Do you, do you see how it's not that simple, but you can find the truth of the matter pretty simply? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and just not to shock people, the way you find out that a fundamentalist um, Muslim uh, or a uh, Islamic culture uh, is a, it uses the Torah is because there are, uh, I'd say about, a, I wouldn't say a score, but about a dozen or so passages that tell you if you want law, you have to go to Moses. What Moses wrote. It's in the Quran. It's various Syria, I think Syria 28, Syria 31. You, you can, you know. Look it up. Yeah. Yeah, look it up on your own. So let's move on to specifically look at what they call Judaism. Uh, when you talk about that, I found that you have to differentiate between the ethnic and territorial denotation versus the religious one. Uh, we have the modern word Jew, which more or less means member of the modern Israeli state or religion, and that word is not the same as Judean, which means ethnically descended from the people who once inhabited the region of Judah. Um, in what ways have you found that that distinction is relevant? Uh, eschatologically, because when you read about the supernatural, ultranatural uh, events and, let's say, prophetic dictates, it's what runs through your blood and what allegiances you have. So it's mainly genealogical, and then also it's uh, allegiance. So you can have someone who is not of the line of Judah, right? Because if you, just a short interjection, <clears throat> if you read the Bible, there are no Jews uh, prior to Abraham, and there are really no Jews prior to Judah. And technically, um, all of the scripture, uh, I think the original King James didn't have, well, maybe they did. They changed it several times in 1611 revisions, uh, but it's never Jew, it's Judean. So Judean then connotates a very specific line from one of the 12 or 13 sons, right? So technically before Judah was born, there are no Jews. If you, the word Jew equals Judean. But allegiance is also important because in the, what's called the Torah, uh, uh, sojourners, strangers uh, that come in and commit themselves to the 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 economy of the Torah, meaning the culture of the Torah, uh, are to be considered as equal. So there's no racism and there's no prejudicing uh, when someone takes uh, an, an allegiance to Yahweh like that. And and there's no conversion. Also, there's no ministry. You want you want to be uh, with us? You learn. We don't go out and uh, tell people what they should do. Right. And when you read about ministry in the New Testament, it's about go tell those who, who are, know about uh, the possibility of the Christ coming. Let them know that he came and was resurrected. It's not to create some <laughs> ridiculous religion or something, you know. Mm. And so is there a sense in which there's a fallacy in the language 
between Jew and Judean, where when the Jews talk mm -hmm. about themselves, they're talking about a fictitious group. Well, yes, it's it's a ideology. It's a political group, just like Christian is political, right? There's no right when you think about it that way. Uh, like when you hear church, for here's a good example. Church means circus, no matter how you slice it, right? Uh, a kid is a baby goat, no matter how you slice it, no matter how you want to look at it. When words like that take on different meaning, it's based on the ideology of that culture. And these cultures come and go. And when they go, they're typically criticized uh, harshly. Uh, they're never criticized when they're still around. Is it known out of what culture the Jewish group emerged out it of? No, no, it's hard to say, but there's a lot of mucking about in Europe uh, after the first millennia uh, of this era. Like I heard someone say, well, Jewish means Yahweh's wish. I'm like, I got a good laugh out of that. It's like history is his story or television is telling lies on your vision. So it goes from stuff like that all the way to the uh the, the invention of the letter j which was the letter i uh, in the 1500s with a, a comma next to it a little hook they used the letter i with a little hook a comma and then they said why don't we connect the comma that little hook and the letter i and make a j you see that's how the letter j came about around the uh 16th century 1500s it's just i'm oversimplifying there but it's pretty accurate these are things like L O, like you know how the different technology with the computers, you have all these acronyms, I M H O or L O L or all that. Are are they um, are they useful tools to communicate? Yes. Um, are they profoundly trivial? Yes. I, I, and here's the interesting part. Let's see, let's just cut to the chase. If you're going to be Judean, quote unquote, an adherent and fundamental, uh, you would follow the Torah, and none of them do. They don't know it. It's not taught. You can't blame them for being blind. Right? They don't even know what day it is, right? Biblically. And they don't understand how to manage uh, the economy of the food laws. They don't understand, you know, uh, they, yeah, which leads to who's leading them. So if you really want to get down to it, there are, it's basically what which era are we discussing and which culture but in terms of uh, if you, again to cut to the chase uh, a lot of the quote unquote Judeans um, know who they are uh, and all the other like the Levites and the Benjamites so they know who they are the world doesn't really know who they are and the world doesn't even know what it means but again let's harken back to I said earlier in the Torah You'll find that if a stranger or sojourner or foreigner comes into the camp, into the, into the, the culture, and uh, decides to make an allegiance to Yahweh and follow his laws, he is now included. Do you see how it works? It would be the same as, uh, you know, any club, right? Once you take an oath or whatever. So those, those are the two levels. But you have to understand the, the fundamental aspect of the genealogy also, you know, meaning the descendants of Abraham and the descendants of Judah, Isaac. Uh, but you see, there are just as many descendants of Abraham that are, quote-unquote, non-Jewish, right, through Ishmael and others, than there are, right, because he had three wives, I think, three women that he 
And then Isaac had four women, and out of one of them, Judah comes out. So it's interesting, the three and the four, and the four, and the Judah is the fourth of the fourth woman, the oldest woman. Yeah, fun with numbers, huh? Yeah, what's that called, gematria? Yeah, mm -hmm. there's a lot to it. But there does seem, there seems to be a break between ancient Israelite religion and the Judaism of the Second Temple period. So prior to the Babylonian exile, Israel seemed very clear in their understanding about the diversity and the hierarchy among the gods and which nations, you know, had a god ruling over them, etc. But then after the 5th century BC, a lot of that seems to fall apart. Once the temple is destroyed and Greece and Persia become dominant, it's almost like the Israelites right. created a new system led by groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees or dynasties like the Hasmoneans, and it becomes a lot more political and nationalistic and overly zealous and almost delusional. Can you talk about those developments? Well, the Hasmonean was the was the post-Greek uh, 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 Hellenism. I mean, they really lost their culture. They actually lost their culture big time to the Babylonians, I should say, which came after the Assyrians. Um, the Assyrians were too practical. That's another discussion. The Babylonians were more um, all-encompassing, not just practical. You know, in other words, the Babylonian stuff will permeate every aspect of your life. Where the Assyrians are more like the blue-collar, you know, uh, conquerors. But anyway, how many times can you can your culture be modified? Let's just go. Let's use the American culture as a as a uh, an example. Uh, back in the 17th and 16th centuries, the colonies were here in America, and they were settled. A colony, the states were colonies. There were corporations, uh, mostly uh, British, English, Scottish settlers. So when you came here, let's say to what's called New York, New Amsterdam, or the Virginia colonies, or the Carolinas, or Pennsylvania. You essentially met uh, Scots, Germans, Brits, essentially. But if you look at it now, it's essentially American, isn't it? Very different. Well, what happened? Well, 200 years. And more, inf more foreign influence, right? Right. Hmm. So when we look at some of the other ways that the religious and the cultural practices of the Judeans changed during the Babylonian exile, we see changes in the timekeeping observance with the adoption of the dark moon, changes to the language and religion in the emergence of certain mystery religion undercurrents. So one could say that the Judeans who returned to Israel from the exile had a very different calibration than the ones who went into Babylon. And you could almost say that the upper classes at least were more Babylonian than they were Judean, especially since a lot of them chose to stay in Babylon, correct? Yes, and there were a lot of them that, that were allowed to stay and ruled by go Babylonian governorship in Israel or in Jerusalem also. I'd say uh, the majority, those who count, right? Like Imagine a city of morons uh, of a million people. They're all morons except for 100 people. When you take those 100 people out of that city, there's you know 999,000 whatever left, but they're not counted, right? In other words, you don't count. You know what I mean? It's kind of like a uh, uh, when you look at a school with a thousand kindergartners and four staff. You know, it's the staff that counts. You don't go to the kindergartners asking about next year's budget or something. You have many conditions like that. The gods, by the way, they do favor they do favor people who are, are productive, good at what they do, uh, knowledgeable. They don't like the um, 
I'm going to throw this in. All the gods, uh, very little exception, don't like the lower classes. Lower classes meaning those that, uh, you know, you might, for example, have a philosopher that decides to say, screw this society, I'm going to live in, the, in, a, in a vase, in a big terracotta pot in the, in the forest. Right, that's different. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the masses. You know, the the, the what you in America you call them the middle class. They're not really a middle class. They're lower class. Right. You know, the hot dog, baseball, apple pie, wave the flag, get my pension. That's not middle class. There's no middle class here. It's it's low class, and then you have the uh, the credit wealthy and elite, and then you have the poor, but it's the poor are slightly below the low class. There is no middle class in America. They're lower class. But anyway. I think uh, that's never been said before. All you hear is the middle class. There's no middle class. Where? Show me. Show me someone who's middle class. I'll show you a low class human or low class culture, right? Uh, you know, Britney Spears, you know, who we're going to go vote to make things better, you know, go buy your microwave, heat up your, you know, that's not middle class. But they have stuff. So, yeah, it still doesn't matter. Yeah. You ever go to a redneck, uh, redneck garage sale? They got lots of stuff, man. <laughs> but anyway. It, it's not, yeah, the stuff, yeah, that's the simple-minded way to look at it, though. Uh, I'm talking about what the gods, uh, how the gods see it, mm. right? Uh, you have to have knowledge, you have to have wherewithal, and you have to also be very good with your surroundings, right? Uh, so, anyway, uh, it's, it's not that simple. The simplest way to assess anything is look at what's promised and then look at the end result. And it's never very clean cut, is it? Right. When I say what's promised is like, let's say something prophetic in scripture or something that's written historically, but you look at it later and the outcome is very different. Right. Here's another way to look at it. Cyrus and others uh, from the Persian Empire um, agree that they, the, the Judean authorities that could rule uh, in Jerusalem and rebuild the temple should. And they supported that action. Okay. And with minimal influence, not like the Greeks. They didn't decide to build a Zoroastrian temple, right? Like the Greeks want to build the temple of Zeus or things like that. And the Romans and the others. They respected, uh, so, so they go back and uh, everything's uh, peachy keen. We're right back to where we started, right? Wrong, right? It's not like it was under David or Solomon, mm -hmm. right? Although technically you could say that a big part of the reason that things couldn't go back to the way that it was because there was no king, there was no monarchy because you were operating under the auspices of the Persians. Well, so they kind of let them go back yeah, only halfway. The Hasmoneans kind of, they try to fix that with the, yeah, the Hasmoneans, yeah, later. But they, yeah, it would have been known. It's a political move again. What happened is that the whole thing was subsumed into, you know, more of a secular culture. And the Mar they, they, it wouldn't be hard to find a descendant of David, but they put in uh, half-breeds, right? Herod, for example. I mean that literally. It's a breeding program. You, un you understand royalty is a breeding program. Yeah. I mean, you can have fake royalty as well. Well, um, the first king, let's say in Israel, there was, there was no kings before that when he was made a king. Um, he's a king if everyone says he's a king. And, of course, there's a process there because they had to get uh, permission from the higher authority. And at the time, what's very hard for people to understand is um, 
people were uh, the angelic realm or the gods were more interactive back then. It's really hard for people to understand. That's why when I tell people your prayers aren't being answered, no one's listening to you. It's pretty accurate. They might they might think they their prayers are being answered and listened to, because you know you'll always confabulate. You know, something, you know, I was totally broke. I was destitute. I prayed and all of a sudden I started getting money. Eh, not really. There's going to come a time when, the, again, where there will be listening. And when they listen to your prayers, the gods, they, they let you know directly. And now it's called hearing voices. You'll be put in a straitjacket with a cherry lollipop. But if I tell people your prayers are not being listened to, eh, they don't like to hear that, right? Okay, why am I saying, why am I being so harsh and strong about that? Because back then, when you prayed, uh, someone came around and says, yeah, we heard your prayer. Right. Someone, I mean, physically, you know, and they were there one moment physically, and then they were not. It sounds bizarre, just like now if you went back and uh, you said, I have a computer, it's an Apple or a Windows. They'll look at you like, yeah, I know what you're saying, but I really don't know what you're saying. So if you tell people... That when people prayed and they expected, you know, they did sacrifice, and there was a physical manifestation and an acknowledgement, it was tangible. Today they, they don't see it because no one's listening right now. There is going to come a time in the near future where that will change. All you hear is confabulation. Well, I was in a tough spot. I prayed and I got help. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh-huh. It's not, yeah, I'm not saying you did not get help, but I'm not, you know, it. Did an angel come and acknowledge? Well, then, uh, you know, you know. Uh, here's an example. You know, put a dollar under your pillow in the tooth fairy. It's the same thing. No one's listening to your prayers. Okay. We, so get over it. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll stop crushing crushing people's uh, uh, emotions for just a second. Hey, uh, by the way, there's a whole bunch of scripture to support that. No, I get what it. I just said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of scripture to support that. There surely is. Um, mm hmm I don't know too much about the language changes during that time, but at some point, ancient Hebrew died off because it wasn't spoken by the second, first century BC, except maybe in specialized settings. Um, the lingua franca was mostly Aramaic and Greek in the region. What do you know about the death of ancient Hebrew? There's a lot uh, that's complicated. There was a whole mess of stuff going on in that seventh uh, century BC, sixth century, fifth century BC, between the Egyptians, the uh, uh, various, uh, mainly the Egyptians. Uh, there's very, there's very little about it. Uh, known as like a Sinaiic writing, which was uh, Egypt to promote, you know, a, you know, like a, a lingua franca, right? And that influenced uh, the ancient Hebrew a lot, which led to the Babylonian script that you see today called modern Hebrew, which was fully adopted, standardized by 1000 A.D. Let's say. But there was a, a lot of language, uh, uh, in other words, uh, efforts to standardize language back in the 7th century, 6th century, 5th century, 4th century BC with major Egyptian influence. And uh, you can look, it's kind of like chasing a rabbit to find out where and why things changed. But um, there is a passage, I think, in Ezra or Nehemiah where he says, now you're going to write differently or something like that. Which kind of seals it around that you know 560 580 BC time period, where they went to a more modern Hebrew. There is a lot of stuff happening around that period, but you know I found that if a language dies off 2,500 years ago ish, I find it hard to understand how it resurfaces just a few hundred years ago with modern Hebrew. So that's always been 
bit of an anomaly that nobody right. challenges that. Well, yeah, the modern Hebrew is a hybrid, but the ancient Hebrew, it's not, it hasn't died off because it still is translatable. I've actually seen ancient Hebrew on, uh, for example, out in um, the Decalogue written out on uh, Las Lunas, New Mexico, Decalogue stone, right? And it's readable. I'm not saying I've seen ancient Hebrew anyway. Anyway, I mean, I've seen it on a monument. And that was supposedly done about 800 years ago in New Mexico. So... One of the things that I have heard um, is that modern Hebrew is very much influenced by Yiddish, which um, emerged mm-hmm. in the Middle Ages as this language among the Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi Jews in Central Europe. That would make more sense since Yiddish was actually a thing and could be ported over into modern uh, Hebrew? Timing is off. Yiddish would be a few hundred years after, but in its origin around the Masoretics, uh, let's say 1100s or so prior to that, were, had already for, uh, decided as a family, scholarly, scribe type, uh, academic, just like you have Scheiman and Schuster today or whatever, I mean, if they're even still around, uh, publishing house type people, uh, sort of formalized it around 1000 AD, 1020, 1100, it was formalized. Mm-hmm. Middle Ages is after. Uh, it was, uh, you, you can find that modern Hebrew uh, writing um, much earlier than that. You know, even around the, you'll st- you can still find it around the time of seventh uh, century, sixth century when Islam surfaced. I would say I would I would lean if I were to lean uh, anywhere to get my stuff on where it came from, it would be I would lean heavily on the Babylonian influence, hence the Babylonian Talmud, right? But there was a major effort around that time, actually, you know, the seventh, sixth, fifth century BC from Egypt to formalize because Egypt always saw herself as being the the crown jewel of that culture right until you start going all the way east again to India but uh, the Levant up and down the Levant uh, le- and to the right if you're facing the map Egypt always saw itself as being the cultural center of the world yeah there's I looked a while back there's a it's, it's Sinaiic like the sign of Sinai Sinaiic uh, form of writing, and if you look at it, it's uh, around three, four hundred BC. It's uh, very similar to modern Hebrew, and it was put out by Egyptian. And that was also the time of the Hellenicism of, you know, the founding of Alexandria and all that, right? Mm-hmm. Ptolemyan kind of time period. But I wouldn't say that the ancient Hebrew is lost or dead. It's still very tangible and readable and usable. It's not like linear A or linear B of ancient Greece with 200, you know, letters in the alphabet and you have 14 letters to make the sound E, right? It's not pictographic either like uh, Chinese. So. Right. Um, I don't know there to be much information outside of maybe Jewish literature about the internal developments during the Babylonian exile. But it does seem like the genesis of the Pharisee class came out of that period because the temple was gone, the observance of religious rituals was moved into homes and handled by elite, certain elected leaders, and also I believe there were questions about the legitimacy of the second temple because it was constructed under the auspices of Persia. Um, partially, that's partially why synagogues came about. Right. Can you talk about well, these? Well, that was the great. 
Mm-hmm. That's part of the great assembly, you know, the Sanhedrin and all that, and the Pedashim and the Sadrashim. You know, like the the names; those names imply, you know, piety or and and you know, nobleness and within, you know, doing the right thing or whatever. Corruptible uh, and occultic, uh, but uh, post uh, around that time of the Hasmonean. You know, let's let's get rid of this Greek. We lost our culture. And so much that we could say we're – in other words, we're losing our culture so much we could say we've lost it, so let's form an assembly. But uh, they're going to – they've lost the, – they've already lost the ideologies and the old uh, – all they had to do was go back to the text and read, which no one does, right? So they already decidedly lost everything culturally, and they tried to firm it up by forming these assemblies and the Pedashim and the Sadrashim and so on. And – what did it, what did it do? I mean, uh, a lot of public works. You know what I mean? Public works, like when you see a mega church, you know, for Christians, that's public works project, isn't it? You ever see how big those buildings are with all the seats and the parking lots and all that? Is that religious or is it a public works project? So what happens is they you have a group that is supposedly reinstating you know, the good old days, but they're just getting involved in public works projects and various codes and dogmas to restructure the society for their, you know, their power base. I mean, the Pharisees as a group seemed to emerge out of the scribes and the sages, and they started gaining more power around the second century BC-ish. Um, I think an example mm-hmm. of how the Pharisees and the Sadducees differed in their approach to the law was their application of an eye for an eye. Because what I'm told is that the Pharisee understanding was that the value of a lost eye was to be paid in currency by the perpetrator. So like Mm -hmm. silver, probably. But the Sadducees had a literal view that, no, your eye has to be gouged out now. Do you know why these two camps sort of emerged this way, given that they didn't exist prior? Ideology. Very simple. Ideology and what people will expect. Because no one really likes a monopoly, right? No one really likes, you know, they have antitrust laws for monopolies. So you have to give people that they, uh, the idea that they have choice. Where you wouldn't see much of that during the, de- the times of Moses or David or Solomon. That's more of the um, easing up of, you know, more of a, the secular way of functioning. Here, let me just, I want to interject something. When you read scripture, that is a weekly newsletter. How much do you expect to get out of a weekly newsletter? Well, as much as a weekly newsletter can give you. Why do I say that? Because a day is a thousand years. And it covers roughly, well, it's a 13,000 year period, but in earnest, it does cover a pretty solid amount of 4,000 years. And it includes a 7,000 year plan. So if one day is a thousand years, well, that's just what happens cosmically for a week when you read scripture. Right? So when you hear about the culture changing over a thousand years, that's just a day's worth of change, cosmically. And the only reason you have all these epics changing is because man only lives for a hundred years or so. Now it's going to sound like the Greeks getting into philosophy about these things, but if see if people had a normal life of a thousand years, I assure you these cultural changes and discussions about what happened to who and when and how wouldn't be happening because the, you'd be alive for a thousand years. And your ideology and your uh, your culture would be pretty much unchangeable for at least a thousand years within your lifetime, mm-hmm. right? So these changes is because your life is so short. So imagine you only lived five years. You wouldn't have 
this conquest and that conquest a few hundred years later. You'd have a conquest every year <laughs> or every five years, a complete turnaround of the entire planet because you only live five years, you see. Right, that's true. You live a thousand years, nothing's going to change in a thousand years. You're not going to accept it. Mm -hmm. You know. So you have to factor these changes and what happened, who, how, and where based on my, man's li uh, life span of less than a hundred years. And then it makes sense. Not why, who, why, you know, how, and, and what. Well, it's very simple because these beings live for a hundred years and. You can screw around with them for that hundred-year period, but it's easier to screw around with them when they die, right? Their mm -hmm. culture, right? No one to defend it. You influence the young, so you'll notice that there's a forty. There's historians have found, you know, forty-year, two hundred-year, four hundred-year cycles. Why? It's because you only live for a hundred years. If you live to a thousand, you would have twenty-five hundred, three thousand-year cycles. Yeah, that's good food for thought. Yeah, I see no problem, and I see nothing to really learn from the changes. Of course. Of course, every 100 years or 200 or 300 years, you have an empire. Of course, because these poor saps only live for 100. And you look at the uh, influencing and of one culture and the reaffirming of another. Yeah, it takes several generations times, you know, so 100 times 2 times 3. Yeah, it works. Look, for example, at Frank Herbert, who writes fiction in the Dune God Emperor, he lives for several thousand years, and the universe is stable for that time period because he lives for that long. Another factor that uh, seemed to play a role in how different Israelite sects developed in the Second Temple period was something called the Oral Law or the Oral Torah. And so the Israelites had the Torah that was given to them by Moses, um, and that was emphasized by the Sadducees. But at some point prior to or during the Babylonian exile, the emphasis was also placed on a secondary set of unwritten traditions on how to apply the Torah, and that was favored by the Pharisees, and then that grew eventually after Ezra. Um, so by the time we get to the New Testament, the Judeans are giving equal weight to both laws, if not more, to the oral one. Can you talk about how these two observances created problems? Yeah, animals don't like to read and write, so if you want to take control of people, you push them into the animalistic realm. I once, uh, this one guy got a ticket for not having a driver's license. So we walk into the court and clearly says that, you know, all the states that offer driver's licenses are, uh, have to go under the federal requirements to, you know, issue and require that. And he brings in all this stuff. It says, well, unless you're driving a vehicle that weighs more than 10,000 pounds, you know, your average car is only three to 4,000, you know, you're going to be doing this, that, and the other. And he shows it to the judge. He says, well, that's not what it says. <laughs> that the judge actually says that's not what it says, right? Like you're not what you're reading is not really there. You get it? And he reduced the fine from 250 to 75. Do you, do you see what I mean by that? See the analogy? Why you go into oral? Because animals don't read. So if you're ruling over animals, you can you know what you say goes. Crack the whip. Of course, you're going to impose oral law. In this culture, it's television. People, when they, let's say, for example, look at law, the judicial system and all that, what they know about it comes from television, which is the oral. They don't know any law. Even police and attorney generals don't know any law. Supreme Court judges don't know any law. I mean, they might know enough to get the job, but they don't know how to apply it because the minute they try to apply the law, they're fired. Or 
they find porn on their computer or there was a scandal to get him, get rid of, you know, public, you know, get, they're not going to tell you we got rid of him because he's trying to apply the law. We got rid of him because he was found with, um, you know, crack in his pocket, smoking crack. Here's the video. You see what I mean? The same thing is that you see in corruption today was going on back then. Whenever you hear oral this or oral that, it's like you're being reduced out of the human realm into the animal world. Herd. You ever heard of herd immunity, mm -hmm. right? The herd, the sheeple. It's pretty sad. It doesn't take, you don't have to be a genius to see through that, but seemingly, you know, you do. So simple. Yeah, so that I bypassed that whole thing. The significance of it is more cultural, it's psychological, and it's domination. No, I get it. Hmm. That's why, for example, uh, you know, the, let's go back to the subject a little bit. <laughs> uh, Jews, quote unquote, uh, through history, were always intermediaries between cultures that were rival. Like, uh, like you said, the medieval ages all the way till now. Um, you had the Constantine type empire, uh, Christian empire that didn't like the Muslim empire or, you know, groups. So the Jews got in between as merchants. You know, the go-between. So when the Europeans wanted to do trade with the Arab world, in India, the Jews got in between because they were neither, a third party. They were uh, also, they were, you know, they, were a, a, they found themselves being a third party between cultures that were um, at odds with each other. And uh, also, it's within their culture. You can read that Yahweh promotes education and literacy. You'll find several verses where he says when the people pass by, you know, that they should not only see the law, but they should read it and they should know what it means. You know, I think it's in Joshua and other places. The king was supposed to make his own copy of the five, handwrite his own copy of the five books of Moses, you know, on and on and on. So uh, there was a, the Jewish culture and the Torah promotes literacy. So that made him a good intermediate because, you know, you didn't if you're going to rule over people, it's, it gets tricky. But if you're going to rule over animals, it's a lot easier. So if you can bring the people to think like animals, right, uh, then you're ruling over animals because they think like animals. I use a lot of animal analogy, like, you know, when, what the the mass, the public uh, or, you know, you they go to a feeding trough. Right spiritually it's a feeding trough so yeah they're the human uh, in other words uh, people don't exist anymore there's it's very few people left on the uh, lots of other beings two-legged but very few there are no more people left men and women no more very very few if not any and you're and those that know that they're men and women um, uh, will not be too vocal about what it takes to be a man or a woman hmm well, the last set of questions I have is about pretty much how Judaism developed after the first century. Um, I think it's interesting that similar to how the various forms of Christianity that existed in the fourth century AD had to be suppressed by the state so that Nicene Christianity could become dominant. In that way, also, Judaism had different sects that disappeared. Um, so following the Judeo-Roman wards, you had the revolutionary groups like the Zealots who were crushed. The Sadducees disappeared with the destruction of the temple and the Essenes vanished after being sacked by the Romans, so you only have the Pharisees remaining 
and their vision of Judean religion is what became rabbinic Judaism and eventually normative Judaism that we see today. Why do you think no other group has emerged in the last 2,000 years to really challenge that position of the rabbis and their religious stranglehold? Well, here's the thing. You know what like uh, artificial scarcity is? You know, like if the farmers have too much crop, they burn it so the prices stay high, right? That's very simple. That's, that's all it is. They just – they just uh, it's a control again. Uh, you, you make people's uh, life tough enough that they're not going to care about educating themselves about things that don't put you know, uh, food in their belly. And when you hear about these groups being crushed, I guess their God wasn't listening to them. Because if he was, he would go to fight. He would fight for them. Very simple. Well, there's always winners and losers, even if mm -hmm. the gods fight. It's really a battle between the gods. But if your god is not listening to you, it's not a battle between gods. Uh, for an example of that is, is scripture with Exodus. The whole Exodus thing is a battle between the gods. Don't get hung up about the plagues and uh, whatever, whatever. It's a battle between gods. That's the crux of the matter you've talked a lot in the past about today's rabbis and how they have an almost oppressive nature to them within judaism and israel can you elaborate on that a bit yeah i call them the gestapo is the geheimden something in german means the secret police that's what gestapo is an act a short for geheim means secret in german and stunstaffel or something is police that's what the rabbis are you know how we said earlier, or I said earlier, that all of the mainstream religions at the very top administrative level are satanic. You know, in other words, they worship the god of this earth. And it's not an opinion, right? You could look everything I'm saying up. But what they put out in the culture is what the culture, quote unquote, demands loosely. Because remember, they're too busy working to put, you know, feed themselves and their children. So... They may not have a revolution or a war or anarchy in the streets, let's say, if they say we're Satanists, but pretty close. So they want to maintain the cultural identity, right? So when you say the rabbis or whatever, they're maintaining cultural identity, but they're given, quote unquote, um, liberty to use their own policies. That's why a lot of people in Israel... They're asked, you know, you're going to live here. Are you secular or religious? Well, you want to say you're secular because if you say you're religious, you're assigned a rabbi district-wise. And he knocks at your door anytime or whatever and makes sure that you're doing what he wants you to do or what is culturally popular at the time. Is that how you want to live? So for most people, that's totally okay because they want to, they want to be good Jews. They want to be good whatever, you know. So in order to be good, I have to accept that, you see. Like most people that are, for example, the Catholics do what they do because they want to be good people. They don't know any better. But in the end, it doesn't matter. What they're doing is wrong and they're going to be, you know, they're going to pay the price, right? Even cosmically. Most Catholics, uh, they think they, they're, why are Because I want to be a good person. Wow. It's like you just got to face palm and walk away. No, you're really ignorant. You don't spend five minutes in your entire life looking anything up, right? Oh, Greek, that doesn't make any sense. They have Bible, you know, whatever, every Wednesday, a Woden's Day, you know, for Woden, and they study the Bible. Yeah. I mean, it shows you cosmic censorship, right? So it's the same thing with with any religion. The imams, they do the same stuff. 
you know, when you hear about stonings because someone stepped on the Koran by accident, you know, in Afghanistan or, you know, Kuwait or whatever, you know, they, they kill thousands of people every year for desecrating the Koran. Um, that just doesn't, you know, what happens is you have the local imam that goes and does a little thing and based on what he thinks or should be done, riles up the crowd and, you know what I mean? It's every every religion. It's all the the Mormons, the Catholics. Yeah, you just go down the, you know, whatever. You know, uh, it's the it's that secret police mentality. Mm -hmm. And connected to what you were saying about the secret Satanism stuff at the top. So, like, out of the rabbinic tradition came this assortment of literature that has arguably become more authoritative than the Tanakh. You, you have the Mishnah and then the Gemara, which make up the Talmud. Is it? because of the hidden esoteric side of things that the rabbis tend to give more weight and attention to what they write in the Talmud than the Tanakh? Uh, no, no, they, they're got, no, if you read scripture, he says, I will, Yahweh says, I will turn my ear, I will turn my face towards you. So what's the opposite of that? Turn away. They know, they know he has turned away from them. So when they did their prayers or whatever they did, they get no help. So we got to do what, what's going to put food in our stomach. So this esoteric knowledge is sort of esoteric knowledge. Yes, it kind of works with the natural world in accordance with the God of this earth. Um, according to your human lifespan, according to your desires, uh, you form the, the groups, the cults that uh, power have power over the culture and life goes on there's nothing special about it their god is a, their god um, meaning yahweh uh, is not listening and they know it because they ask them are you listening and there's no answer so what do we do now well if if this doesn't work let's go to the next one see if that works and it works enough for them as a power base because if they were preaching and teaching and using Yahweh and uh, they asked for something and it doesn't come well the people will be like uh, you're lying to us where's the power where's the control over them then if the people think you're a fraud and a sham how are you going to control them but if you start saying well it's mystery knowledge and this that and the other and it goes on and on and this this and the other and you got to conjure up some things that may or may not come true and appear to be true and received as being true, now you have power over them. And you start teaching that in order to be good, you have to listen to us, right? That's the Catholic thing, right? And or whatever. This is the same religious thing. If In order to be a good person, you have to listen to these group of people. Yeah, when you first come out with it, you're going to throw rotten eggs at you. But you don't go after the adults that know what you're doing. You go after their children. And you wait for the adults to die, and then those children then may not be wholeheartedly into that control structure, but then you go after their children. And those children then will be more than 50-50, they'll be 70-30, and then their children will be 90% on, on board. So it takes three generations to develop a power base like you, know, like you see in the world. I mean, you could do maybe like four or five hours of Greek speak and destroy any rabbi. You could do four or five hours of you know Greek speak and destroy any Catholic priest. I mean, what is it because of, what I'm some kind of genius or something or whatever? No, this is really so. It is so simple. It's like 
it's it's just like the emperor has no clothes. The child, you know, everyone is amazed. And the child's like he's naked. It's not hard. It's not difficult. And in terms of the non-rabbinic forms of Judaism, we have things like Karite Judaism, Samaritanism, the Ethiopian Judaism, none of which recognize the oral law or those kind of things. Can we find within any of those other groups some kind of saving grace within an otherwise wayward religious tradition? No, No. those are traditions, and the traditions come from what's allowed. Like, for example, you can do even a cursory study of history of, let's say, since we're speaking of who are the Jews— of the inquisitions and the fav- lack of favorability over several empires in in Europe, and I mean empires all the way till the o- end of the Ottoman Empire, World War One, right? You could look at look at the persecution of the uh, Jews, and then it was eased up, and then they were persecuted again. Then they go here because they're accepted, but then they're persecuted, right? They you know they were persecuted in Europe, Spanish Inquisition, all that. Actually, they were persecuted and destroyed by Rome in the second century completely. By the end of the first, uh, beginning of the second century, completely destroyed, millions killed. They go, where do they go? They go to Spain, right? Uh, then they're destroyed in Spain later on, right? Where do they go? Russia. And then Russia accepts them. And then what, who destroys them in Russia? The Russians, the, the pogrom, right, programs during the 17, uh, 18, 19 centuries. Do you, do you see? Now they're accepted because they're good third parties. They're they, you know, like if you're starting a country or you want to bring your country into this, that you miss this particular industrial revolution. You bring in quote unquote people that are raised in a Jewish culture. They're very literate. They have connections. They bring you up to speed. Uh, okay, well you go live in your own neighborhood and then you destroy them, get rid of them, or make them. You know, once they give you what you right what you want. And the, the reason they're able to do that is because they were very international. You know, you, anyone can study, quote unquote, all of the sciences in medicine, mathematics, astronomy, and all that, and from the medieval ages on that were advanced, and prior, advanced in the Arab world, right, and Eastern world. Well, how did it get to Europe? Through the Jews, right? This is all because you only live 100 years. Again, if you lived five years, you would see, oh, this empire rose and fell in 20 years, conquered the whole world in 20 years, right? Because that would be equivalent to 200 now, let's say. It's very simple. If you lived five seconds, you would have the Roman Empire rise and fall in three minutes, <laughs> right? Here's another another three minutes. Here's another empire. Here comes you know, the Draconian Empire, takes over the whole world, you know, reptilians walking around, you know, with their spaceships, let's say, right? And they control the earth for two hours. You only live for five seconds. Of course, I mean, that's a long time. Wow, look at all these changes, right? But again, if you live for a thousand years plus, you ain't going to see much change a few thousand years. All these things are, once you consider the um, that it's based on cos, uh, cosmic awareness and then lifespan and then location, meaning the planet Earth, you look at history and it's like, of course, yeah, there's a curiosity about what happened, when and how and why and who. But you have to consider those things. There is a, a cosmic situation, a clockwork, and then there's the lifespan of the beings that you're looking at. I mean, let's go look at it this way. This is maybe over-objectifying. The life of rats. Look at the life expectancy of a rat and their empire and their culture and whatever. Look how it changes. 
based on their life expectancy, right? Same, you'll, you'll find that with anything. So the division here, not to divert, but you have to keep, you have to keep that in mind, the lifespan, right, um, of the beings that you're discussing. And this is a, not a contrast, but an inclusion of the gods. What's the lifespan of a god? We don't know, right? So this is no big deal to them, but it's a big deal to us. Again, that's why I say they're not listening. No one's listening to you. There, there's, there's scuttlebutt. Yeah, they're, they're listening. They're observing, but it's not like it used to be, right? And for those that are wise and understand what's coming, it will change, right? In the near future, right? So, and I do want to just uh, ask if there's something to distinguish between. They're not listening as in the ones that you're praying to aren't listening versus perhaps there are some low-level right. malevolent ones that are listening and do what they want. Right. For each person, there could be 5,000 malevolent entities waiting for that person to do the right thing to bring them in because they have to be some brought in somehow. They each have their own characteristic and how they're brought in. But I assure you the big ones, uh, the main ones, are not listening because everything's already set. It's kind of like you're getting ready, you know, uh, I don't know, you're, you're putting on a tuxedo to go to the, the um, debutante ball and your neighbor, you know, you got to be there in an hour. Your neighbor knocks on the door and says, you, can you help me change a flat tire? Uh, you're going to be like, no, dude. I got an important place to be. I got to be at soon. So that's exactly what's going on with the gods now, the higher level ones. They know what has to be done at a certain time, and you're praying about this, that, and the other. They're like, dude, shut up. And the angel's like, well, should I go down and tell him to shut up? No, I'll just leave him alone. He's, you know, not worth it. <laughs> we got a, we got a big, we got a big thing going on soon here. Mm. Otherwise, prophecy would be meaningless. You're given more power. You, you're actually your spirit being is in a micro, um, my, in a microcosmic way. Uh, far more powerful than you understand to manipulate your surroundings spiritually, physically, and all that. That's why I tell people, you're praying to this God, but I, 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 no, he's not listening. No. no, you're doing it on your own. But I'm not, not to take it away from the gods because the, it's at this time period that we're living. And see, if we live during the time of Abraham or David or whatever, yeah, you pray and what did he say? He says, well, I actually got a response. They were quite busy. You know, like they're answering their emails, you know. Now they're not even turning on the computer. They're just looking at the street camera. I'm not, I'm not asking anyone to believe in what I'm saying or agree with me, but you must hear this and consider it. File it away for later. So later on, at some time, I say, this guy, the Greek, said we weren't listening. Oh, yeah, that's right, we weren't listening. <laughs> There's no way to prove that, right? Actually, there is. I, I know if they're listening, they're going to let you know. And they let you know if, why they were delayed and when they came to give you a response anyway. I don't know anyone getting any response. I've been teaching people on scripture and Yahweh and all this. No one's come to me. I say, I got a voice that came and told me nothing, nothing. They just start attributing their lives getting better uh, to their prayers being answered or whatever. This is the first time I'm actually saying this uh, adamantly like this. And this ties in with, quote, unquote, the people in Israel, they're getting their land back and all that because uh, he says, well, I will turn my, I will turn towards you. You will be my people and you are, I, uh, I will be your God. 
if you look at what's going on there right now, is any of that ha any of that true? Nope. It doesn't mean that there's there is no influence, right? It doesn't mean that he's not influencing and all that and uh, making things happen. Right. Okay. Um, the last question I want to ask before we can. Oh, and and by the way, let me okay. interject. This is what gives these uh, these these satanic uh, people that they're they're ruled they're in the medical like your food industry. I know this uh, firsthand, not for secondhand from someone who is one of the families. All your major food companies that provide food and water to the people of the earth, those families and groups are satanic. All of your major religions, the high administrative, are satanic. All of your high political banking elite, medical elite, scientific elite are satanic. Go on and on and on. Your industry people are satanic. When I say satanic, they actually harvest little children, you know, human sacrifice with all, you know, whatever ritual you want to get into, process, you know, cannibalism, burning, whatever, whatever, whatever. And guess what? When they do these things, guess what happens? They get answers. The room suddenly, te the temperature in the room drops 40 degrees and a being appears. I'm talking about like right now, like today and tomorrow. When these people that I mentioned do these rituals, the room temperature drops 30, 40, 50 degrees and a being appears and talks to them. Is your God doing that? I don't think so. Get real, people. Yes, that is something to consider. Hmm. Mm-hmm. You can even go on on the internet and look what up about it. So there's plenty of testimony on it. It's all true. When these Satanists and their medical, political, related doing these ritual sacrifices, they have an answer from their God. Maybe not every time, but hmm, 85 and 95 percent of the time. Where you don't. Zero percent of the time. Do you see what's going on? Let's get real, people. Get your head out of the fantasy world. Get out of that religious dogma crap. Yeah, I mean, within the mainstream stuff, the people aren't really taught to think about their religion as practical in that way. It, there has to be this woo, mystery woo thing right. that it happens behind a curtain, and then we say that God did something. Oh yeah, like Wizard of Oz type stuff. You 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 can do most of it. Um, most of it. Um, there's actually technology that could move you along. Um, like if you study the, a lot of the Hindu culture, their their religion quote unquote stuff is very heavy on technology. You know, tools, actually physical things. There's some stuff like that in the biblical sense. You know, that the the ephod, the You know, the uh, the ephod, the priests wore. Um, the workings of the inner part of the temple, the various tables and artifacts, Ark of the Covenant. Those things were uh, forms of technology, uh, communication devices, uh, so on and so forth. But anyway, uh, yeah, so if you want to know which gods are listening and acting, it's the, the dark forces right now. And there's as, I'm, as we're doing this, there's probably maybe a dozen the type of these rituals that are getting answers right now as we speak. Where you can get on your knees and pray to whatever God you think you might have, you're not going to get an answer. So what the hell is going on, Greek? Or what's going on, Archon? Right? 
what the hell's going on? Well, I just told you what's going on. You, you as an educated, mature adult, have to make a decision on where you're going to put your energy. And no, don't. I'm not saying go ahead and put your energy with the Satanists. If you were to do, I can tell you, I would give you a, a advice on this: is uh, if if you create an intent and quote unquote a prayer, even though they're not listening, that you are uh, saved and preserved from that madness and stay away from it because you're on your own. Give you an example. Let's say you decided to go in one of these rituals or whatever. Your God's not going to stop you. You're going to go right into it. And just with that, your ability to do that, you could stay away from it and stay away from it just as much. And I'm bringing this up in a forthright way is because people are delusional. Mm. All the people delusional. It's like the computer's not working. What's the first thing the tech asks you? Is it plugged in? Right. Um, the last thing that I will just ask before we wrap up is um, the position. You kind of alluded to this earlier, maybe like 40 minutes ago. The position that the leaders within Judaism have taken towards the development of Christianity. Um, one could see the separation between those two religious groups as somewhat odd, given how much they overlap um, and what they claim about their holy books and their history being similar. Yet you have one camp that says that the Messiah came and another camp that claims that he didn't, didn't, but you've previously, you know, talked about how behind the scenes, the Judean leaders already knew that these differences were almost manufactured because they had to cover their tracks in the aftermath of the Christ's death. Yes. Can you talk I, about that? I have, I have a, a very apt, yes, a very apt analogy is the 9-11 fiasco. It's actually, it couldn't fit any better. If you took the Christian first century development and on fiasco and overlaid it over the 9-11 or the JFK shooting. If you had a transparency and you laid it over, you know, the methodology, it is exactly the same. What you do is you want a, the only difference is there was a change that was uh, external, actually both in 9-11 it was external, it was the worldwide power. So here's an example. 9-11, uh, 19 Arab hijackers vaporized the World Trade Center, right? And supposedly airplanes crashed where there was no evidence of the airplanes. And guess what? They built memorials to this, right? So a big airplane goes through the Pentagon and leaves in a 10-foot diameter hole with no plane degree, debris. And they have – they memorialize that date. Then there's a plane uh, with, I don't know, 50, 80, 100 people goes down in Pennsylvania and they build this big memorial, Right. No such thing happened. As a matter of fact, the hijackers, I want to call the FBI and say, go arrest the hijackers that crashed the planes into the building because they were on Egyptian television. Why don't you go arrest them for flying the planes in the World Trade Center because they were on TV stating that they were their identity. You know what I mean? This is how ridiculous it is, right? So what happened was the Judean religious authorities at the time, when they had already discovered – what they had done, which would be deicide, to kill your God, kill your basically Messiah, they needed to cover it up. They couldn't get rid of the cosmic guilt, the divine guilt, but at least if they get rid of it secularly, cover it up, they'll feel better about it. So the, the biblical Christ is stoned to death on an almond tree, but they cover it up by saying he was crucified by the Romans which it's very clear that Pontius Pilate 
you could read in the books of Mark and Luke that he says, I am returning him back to you. I find no guilt that he should be killed. I'm paraphrasing here. You know, I'm returning, use your law. You know, what about Caesar? No, I'm making an exception. And he knew the biblical law because he did a public hand washing, which is part of the ceremony of the red heifer, you know, what has to do with a unjust murder, let's say, right? So they cover it up. The location where it happened, how it happened, and basically the identity of the individual by promulgating the story of 19 Arab hijackers flew airplanes right uh, into the and vaporized 200,000 tons of steel. It all vaporized. You get my point? It's exactly the same thing. Or the magic bullet. It was one bullet. It went through uh, the president. It hit the windshield, came back around, hit the senator next to him or whatever, and then came back around. And people, you know, this is actually written, the Warren Commission. This goes on and on and on and on through history. So if you, the next uh, big false flag, if, well, you have, you're living in a false flag right now um, with the pandemic or plandemic, uh, go study what was done in first century, is, uh, you know, Judea with the story of the Christ. With any, anyone with any comprehension, which you're not, it's very difficult to meet people that have reading comprehension, will read even the scripture and look at the history and see that there's no Roman crucifixion where they say it was and how it was done. It's very simple. Uh, information is information. Whether it's one or two verses, it doesn't matter if it was an entire book written just about that. They, people would ignore it because they lack comprehension. So what you do is you cover everything up to change it. And the easiest way, you cannot deny an event did not happen. They would like to have done that, that it never happened at all. We were never there. They can't go that far. So they just change everything around. The identity is completely changed. And this has been, this has all been going on for on and on and on. I mean, you know, through human history that as far as we know the biggest false flag was the crucifixion and then you could look at all the other false flags right that modeled after that it seems like humanity seems to deserve these false flags have you ever found any uh, written accounts or testimonials about the Jewish leaders knowing this or is it just uh, okay. yeah yeah it's in the Talmuds actually there's um, there, there are plenty of what I call like junk website research sites on the internet that have uh, parts of the Talmud, of various Talmuds that talk about the Yesh, Yeshu character, Ben Pandora, uh, and all this other stuff. You know, years ago I was in a public library, actually a university library, and I did find writings about Pontius Pilate saying that he, a mob took him away to be stoned. And I have not found anything on the internet. I've never seen any deviation from the fact and the truth that Pontius Pilate washed his hands of the matter and did not proceed um, technically with the execution. He proceeded uh, as an occupational force giving a permit, permission for it to take place, but not with the methodology and even the location that people believe. Right? And the reason the Romans were around is the same thing. I give the analogy. Let's say that uh, CCP 
communist Chinese invade the U.S. like the Red Dawn movie with the Russians back in the day in the late 80s. And they take over the United States. And all of a sudden the dust settles. Everyone tries to go back to normal. But your post office and your police and your politicians are all CCP Chinese, right? So people have an idea. Well, July 4th is coming around. So we want to shoot off our fireworks. Well, they have to go to the Chinese CCP and get a permit to blow off their fireworks. And when you're blowing, guess who's going to light the fireworks and guess who's going to be guarding and putting up the caution barrier tape? CCP police. But it's an American celebration. When the Christ was murdered, executed, it was a Judean mosaic execution under Roman occupation. Do you, do you see the analogy? And people are too immature. See, the problem is this this uh, artificial scarcity stuff, you know, like with fossil fuels and we run out of water and, uh, you know, all this burn, 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 blow up technology kind of crap. And people believe scarcity. And they live a lot. Uh, not only do they, it's, it's a, such an ironic uh, culture where they, they're taught everything is scarce, but yet they're so inefficient with what they have, right? They waste 90% of everything, if not more. Uh, conservatively, 80% of what they do is, is wasteful. Uh, and they can't stop for a minute to consider higher order things. And that means comprehension. You don't want to be the only one saying this kind of stuff, by the way, publicly. Because you're, if you ever read the old stuff, uh, let's say turn of the 20th century, when the bankers decided to put in their credit system, they said, well, if anyone figures out what we're doing, we'll just discredit them and, you know, call them insane or, right? So you don't want to be the only one. And right now, I think I am the only one that is saying this. Well, thankfully, you don't have people knocking at your door calling you insane, so... Well, because I, 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 yeah, I'm not selling memberships and, and getting interviews and uh, want to be public. I'm, I think I've... Well, the least we can do is provide the information for posterity or whomever wants to take a look at it later. Um... Well, based on the posterity of a decade, a little bit better than a decade, you don't have that much time left. Now, this will be very well. Here's the other thing. When you do get, get the better society, this information will be will have no value because it's just like going through the trash. Basically, if the next society will, if, if the next society wants to retrospectively look back at this society, it would be the same thing as you going into the big trash bin in your neighborhood, right? It's all trash. Nothing that you see in the society will carry over to the next, other than the basic uh, five, you know, the star human, uh, you know, the, the configuration that we have and maybe boiling water. The rest of it, none of it's going to go transfer over. Uh, so, but everything that I've talked about, it will be known in that society, for you know, with comprehension. Indeed. Well, on that note, I think uh, we've gone through quite a few things, um, and I'm out of questions. Um, I think we'll be unpacking in later episodes some of the other mainstream religions and you know, maybe over the next two or three episodes. But for now, uh, unless you have some concluding remarks, I think we can wrap this one up, Greg. Not that I could think of. I think uh, just uh, carry on. And uh, I guess when we finish this, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be finished. Indeed. Uh, but we'll give it a few more episodes. So, um, okay. yeah, thank you to everybody who tuned in for this one. Um, it's been a fun conversation, and I hope you will tune in for the next one. Bye.